0: Connor. Um, I'm Amanda Callan-Spenn and uh, before we go any further I would like to thank Connor Heffernan uh, for taking care of the tech side of things for us today. Um, So our speaker this evening is Dr Andrew Carter. Um, He's going to be looking at the um, predicted downfall of uh, modern sport in the 19th century. So Dr Carter was recently awarded his PhD from Manchester Metropolitan University uh, on the links between athleticism, classicism and the elite British education system in the second half of the long 19th century. So uh, that's enough from me and I shall hand over to Andy. Andy, take it away, share your
1: screen. All right, thank you, Amanda. Uh, Thank you everyone for coming along. Let me just find the right. Uh. The period between 1850 and the outbreak of the First World War saw radical changes to organised sport in Britain, which led which laid the foundations for the modern sporting landscape. It was also a time when bitter divisions arose concerning who could take part in sport and on what basis. Whilst often portrayed as a simple battle between amateurism and professionalism, the reality was far more nuanced and was based around a series of perceptions and misconceptions regarding class, race, and sex. For the classically educated elite, who had codified and now administered many sports, justification for these ideas was rooted in antiquity. They were reinforced at the time by the leading historians of ancient sport, John Pentland Mahaffey, Percy Gardner, and E. Norman Gardner, who claimed that the event of professional sport in the ancient world Had resulted in over-specialisation, over-commercialisation and widespread corruption, ultimately contributing to the downfall of both Greek and Roman civilisation. Writing about the distant past, they frequently broke off in their narratives to warn of the dire consequences for Britain if modern sport were to follow similar paths. But how reasonable were their comparisons? All too often, the conclusions they drew about ancient sport were colored by their looking at it through a 19th century lens. And although they uncovered an impressive array of factual information about ancient sport, they were often guilty of selectively interpreting it in order to create a narrative that supported the prejudices of their own time. The biggest and most far-reaching misconception was the myth of Greek amateurism. It was embellished and manipulated to influence contemporary sport. Was used not only to try out for financial rewards, but to introduce blanket exclusions on the basis of class. In 1910, Edward Norman Gardiner published Greek Athletic Sports and Festivals. At over 500 pages, it was packed with photographs and illustrations, and combined evidence from ancient text sources, archaeological exploration, material culture, and experiments in recreating throwing and jumping techniques. The most thorough examination of sport in the ancient world ever undertaken, it remained the standard text on the subject for much of the 20th century. Given its importance, it's no surprise it was quickly reviewed by the leading scholarly journals, the Journal of Hellenic Studies and the Classical Review. Both of these looked kindly on Gardner's work paying tribute to his scholarship, but both mainly focused on the same aspect of his narrative, namely the evils of professionalism in sport. In the Journal of Hellenic Studies, all albert declared, professionalism in competitive athletics is a problem that has never been solved. And today it is all the more serious because the true nature of the evil is obscured by the question of money payments. He then went on to talk about problems in the distinction between gentlemen and players in contemporary cricket, before finally getting around to relating this to the rewards that were available for successful athletes in the Greek world. For Albert, Gardner's message was clear. The story of Greek athletics was one of slow and inevitable moral and physical decline, as sport was restricted to over-specialized full-timers and the need to draw large crowds led to a debasement of sport in favor of spectacle. Writing in the Classical Review, Robert Lattin mentioned that Gardner was himself an athlete of some repute and that this enabled him to tackle the subject of sports history with both insight and enthusiasm. Latimer outlined the contents of the book, explaining that it tracked the deterioration of sport from being a useful grounding for the bearing of arms to becoming sterile entertainment. He went on to relate that Gardner was ever ready to apply his reading of history to the downward trend of present-day athleticism, and not without reason. Gardiner certainly was ever ready to do this and did so at regular intervals throughout his text, touching on many of the issues that I'll look at today. He left his readers in no doubt that the downfall of ancient sport was its move towards professionalism and that this triggered a set of social problems which contributed to the collapse of First Greek and later Roman civilization. He also insisted that a similar fate could befall the British Empire. Gardiner was following in a long tradition. In 1749, Gilbert West wrote his dissertation on the Olympic Games. West's purpose in describing the ancient Olympics was primarily to help the readers of his translations of the the Odes of Pindar to understand the context in which they were written. Pindar was a great lyric poet who lived between 518 and 438 B.C., and who is primarily remembered today for the four books of Epinaika or victory odes that he wrote for winners at the great Panhellenic festivals of the 5th century BC? The ancient Olympics was one of four great Panhellenic festivals of the ancient Greek world, the others being the Pythian, Isthmian, and Nemean Games. West described the Olympics as being morally uplifting and felt that the awarding of wreaths rather than valuable prizes promoted the idea that one should compete, not for reward, but for honor and glory. West was only writing about the Olympics, and these were primarily religious festivals onto which the games element was gradually added over an extended period of several hundred years. Although there is some evidence that prizes were originally awarded for these games, West was correct that by Pinders' time, the only official reward for victory was a wreath or crown of leaves. West's assumption, later repeated by others, was that the victory wreath and the associated glory was therefore the only reward, but victors at the great Panhellenic Games stood to gain substantial social capital from winning. The kudos of victory often launched them onto successful military or political careers on their return home, and they were often rewarded in more direct ways as well. Three meals for life was a common prize for Olympic victors, But some cities also gave their successful Olympians cash, houses, or lucrative civic appointments as rewards, and also built town gates and raised statues in their honour. Alongside these great Pan Hellenic festivals, which were known as Stephanitic or crown festivals, where the physical prize was only a wreath, were a great many chromatic festivals, which offered more concrete prizes. The word chromatic comes from the Greek word krama, meaning money. But this does not necessarily mean that cash prizes were on offer. At the most lucrative of all the ancient games, the Panathenaic games, the prizes were large quantities of sacred olive oil, in specially decorated amphora, which could be sold on a great profit. And to give some idea of their value in today's money, the winner of the boys' sprint race would have received oil worth well over 10,000 pounds, whilst the top prizes for men would probably be more in the region of a quarter of a million pounds. West thought the Olympics were good for society and provided a focus for Greek identity, promoted peace and created an environment where trade could be done. However, he also originated the idea that athletics was in a long and slow decline from the time of Plato through to the Roman period. He claimed that money corrupted sport and he used the word professional to describe Greek athletes. In West's time, the concept of amateurism was still relatively new and focused on enjoyment as a primary motive rather than necessarily ruling out any simultaneous pecuniary interest. But it is understandable how his use of the idea of ancient professionalism might encourage his successors to imagine that just as in their own time, professionalism had its amateur counterpart, this might also have held true in antiquity. A century later, amateurs still meant to play for love rather than to rule out cash prizes. When the Phil Athletic Club was formed at Harrow School in 1853, their first meeting ordered an expensive set of trophies. And rowing and athletics races at Eton College featured generous cash prizes. In the early 1860s, when the average wage for a labourer was 15 shillings a week, the future footballer Arthur Kinnard ran in the Eton 350 yards race in successive years, placing third in his first year and first the second. His prizes were respectively 30 shillings for the third place and six pounds 13 shillings for winning. Also in 1866, Eaton paid 66 pounds to commission a trophy for their steeplechase race. However, about this time, the nature of amateurism began to change. As the public school sportsmen of the 1850s and 1860s reached adulthood and took their games out of the socially inclusive socially exclusive environments of their schools and colleges, they created new national championships for many sports. And as these gained traction with the wider public, their dominance came under threat. In rugby and association football, arguments erupted over broken time payments for working-class players who could not otherwise afford time off work to travel to fixtures, as well as over the emergence of a new breed of fully professional player. These arguments grew in intensity in the 1880s, as old boys clubs found themselves no longer able to compete with teams from the industrial North and Midlands. In rowing and pedestrianism, where well-established professional working class traditions already existed, the gentleman amateur was often outclassed by his professional rival. The amateurs responded by first claiming ownership of the sports and then not only banning cash prizes, but restricting entry to events by use of the so-called mechanics clause, effectively banning ordinary working men from athletics and rowing altogether. The men behind the mechanics clause drew on classical education for justification and inspiration, citing the class reforms of Solon, an Athenian statesman from the 6th century BC, as a precedent. Ironically, Solon had actually done much to make Athens a more equal society, as well as laying out the rules for Athenian state rewards to Olympic victors and establishing the lucrative prizes for the Panathenaic Games. This redefinition of the amateur professional boundary to be about class rather than pecuniary reward took place just as the second wave of ancient sports history appeared. Writing about ancient Greek sport in 1877, John Pentland and Haffey of Trinity College Dublin introduced two new elements to the idea of ancient amateurism. Firstly, for Mahaffey, the story began much earlier than the first Olympics with the Iliad and its account of funeral games at Troy. These games were solely for aristocrats, if not kings, and in Mahaffey's view were much the better for it. Henceforth, the decline in alleged athletic standards was viewed as beginning much earlier, and Mahaffey, himself an inveterate snob, looked back to a golden age where sport was unsullied by the participation of ordinary people. In his view... Athletics remained the preserve of the very well-off until around 500 BC, but rapidly declined thereafter as full-time sportsmen emerged. Secondly, Mahaffey built on West's use of the word professional by distinguishing between athletic and agonistic competition, describing the former as rather a loathing amongst the Greeks, while saying the latter was purely amateur. He implied that two separate groups of athletes compete, competed in chromatic and stefanitic games as if they were separate professional and amateur circuits. This assertion was completely without basis. While athletic suggested competing for a prize and agonistic suggested competing for valor and glory, the two concepts were not mutually exclusive. Mahaffey was led astray by his own prejudices and wrongly claimed that the Greeks had a hybrid contempt for running for the pot which, he said, contrasted with modern athletes. His thinking on prizes and reward were both inaccurate and contradictory. He stated categorically that there were no second prizes in any historical games. This wasn't the case at all, as at the Panathenaic Games, there were valuable second and third place prizes. Mahaffey himself mentions the prizes given out to all competitors in the Funeral Games of the Iliad, which he compared to being like a a public school prize day. Edward Norman Gardner also began with accounts from Homer, which he regarded as literal and largely unaltered by generations of oral transmission. In Homeric times, games were often related to aristocratic funerals, and prizes were offered such as tripods, ops and opsites, and even women. Gardner was at pains to explain that the value of the prizes was meant to show the generosity of the giver, or to honour the dead, rather than to attract competitors. With an eye to the amateur ideal, he regarded the awards for competitors as gifts rather than prizes in the true sense, although the fact that prizes were allotted for specific positions and particular events may suggest otherwise. He claimed that by the close of the 5th century BC, there was a clear distinction between professionals and amateurs, claiming the former were referred to as athletes and the, lead, and the latter as idiotes. Like Mahathi, he was applying the parameters and terminology of his own time and its accompanying assumptions regarding class and pecuniary reward inappropriately to the past. The distinction between athletes and idiotes was really about whether they took sport seriously or casually or effectively were skilled or unskilled. One of the rules of the ancient Olympics was that all competitors had to arrive at Olympia at least a month in advance of the festival and undergo tests and preparations under the watchful eyes of the Hellanodikai, the Olympic judges, to ensure that they were fit and proper persons to compete. Athletes were checked to make sure they were a good character to assess which age group they should compete in and to make sure that they were bona fide Greeks but they also had to come up to a standard of competition which the judges felt was strong enough to properly honour the gods. At the very least, an athlete had to have at least five weeks spare and be well accomplished at their sport to compete at the Olympics or in other crown games. However, given that competitors came not only from Greece, but from as far afield as Egypt, Spain and beyond the Black Sea, it must have taken many competitors several months to reach Olympia. This was a serious undertaking, requiring considerable resources and backing. In the early days of the Olympics, it was probably only aristocrats who had the time and resources to take part. But such was the competition between Greek city-states and the kudos to be gained from victory that many began to scout and train potential competitors from an early age, using a mixture of public finances, private donations and investment. Some cities, such as Croton in Italy, even went so far as to lure athletes from other states to compete for them by offering property and financial inducements. With the four year cycle of major Panhellenic festivals and the many local festivals spread across the Greek world, it was possible for some athletes, along with their trainers, to go on the road for extended periods, sometimes for years at a time. And by any standards, this would have been a professional undertaking. After the Hafi, Percy Gardner had expanded on his work in the 1880s with a number of articles on ancient sport and a book, New Chapters in Greek History. For Gardner, professionalism meant specialised training and diets, which he regarded with distaste, if not as a form of cheating. And he was surely guilty of imagining ancient sport through the eyes of a middle-class Victorian when he wrote that the professional element of the competitors came in and the gentlemanly spirit went out. Percy Gardner was assuming that, because they were aristocratic, early Greek athletes were men of honour, and therefore behaved like Victorian gentlemen. Gardner was right that ancient Greek aristocrats were men of honour, but their sense of honour and what it entailed was very different from that expected of a 19th century English gentleman. His statement also carries the unspoken middle-class Victorian assumption that sportsmen from the lower classes, particularly those who played sport for a living, both less honourable and naturally predisposed to cheating and gamesmanship. In his introduction to Greek athletic sports and festivals, E. Norman Gardner took a similar line, talking about the old games having an honourable and friendly rivalry, a phrase which conjures up an image of cordial Oxbridge men shaking hands at the end of a hard-fought contest. This misses a fundamental difference between the ancient Greek and British Victorian attitude to sport. The ancient Greek, sport was emotionally charged and winning was everything. Gardner regarded cheating and corruption in ancient sport as the inevitable side effects of rising professionalism and said so often. However, cheating and corruption in ancient Greek sport were never solely about money, but were the byproducts of a must win culture. Cheater, cheating had always been an issue at the ancient games, hence the need for the judges to keep the athletes in line by force. With the Helenodokai beating wayward athletes with staves. This contrasted sharply with the idea. This contrasted sharply with the ideals of 19th century Corinthian footballers, who were outraged by the introduction of the penalty kick on the grounds that they acknowledged the unthinkable idea that deliberate foul play was even possible. Not only was deliberate foul play possible in ancient Greece, it was also fairly common. This was evident from the row of zanes bronze statues of Zeus paid for by Fines for bribery, which lined the entrance to Olympia. Greek city-states were keen to outdo each other for political reasons, and this led to incidents of bribery and coaching each other's athletes. Gardner happily seized upon this to draw parallels with the emerging transfer market in association football. While Norman Gardner's dire warnings from ancient sport were usually explicitly aimed at modern football, His arguments were somewhat undermined by the fact that ancient Greeks did not really play team games. The Victorians, on the other hand, had consciously developed and promoted team sports as a means of instilling discipline, loyalty and identity into unruly public schoolboys. Team sports were an obsession in schools and universities, with the best footballers and cricketers soon becoming objects of adoration to masters and younger pupils alike. The successful school sportsman was marked with caps, colours, blazers and privileges. In some schools they were referred to as hearties or bloods. Ordinary rules did not apply to them and they were often a law to themselves. The sporting exploits of successful former pupils were breathlessly followed in school magazines, especially if they won an Oxford Blue or an
2: international cap. By the
1: 1880s, the British Empire was in the last throes of imperial expansion and the mood in public schools embraced the cult of heroism to encourage pupils to prepare for military careers. Schools introduced rifle corps and concentrated more on the heroical aspects of classical literature. Sporting heroes sometimes literally became military heroes and were celebrated in verses like Newbolt's Vita Lamparda, linking cricket at Clifton College with the Battle of Abu other sporting heroes like Alfred Littleton and William Grenfell went on to hold high political office. As in the glory days of Athens, sportsmen could gain substantial social capital from their successes and ride high militarily and politically. But the First World War was to have a devastating effect on this generation of public schoolmen and they would be disproportionately slaughtered on the Western Front. Literature such as Owen's Dulce the the and R.C. Sheriff's Journey's End Document the disillusionment of these schoolboys raised on tales of chimeric heroism and sporting valor. E. Norman Gardner ignored this aspect of public school sporting heroism, instead drawing comparisons between gladiatorial and equestrian sporting celebrity in Rome with the public adoration of working-class professional footballers, betraying hero worship as one of the evils of modern sport. Writing that. We have seen the same growth of competition, the same hero worship of the athlete, the same publicity and prominence given to sport out of all proportion to its deserts, the same tendency to specialization and professionalism. Sport has too often become an end in itself. The hero worship of the athlete tempts men to devote selfish amusement, tempts men to devote to selfish amusement the best years of their lives, and to neglect the true interests of themselves and their country. Gardner identified two problems with hero worship. Firstly, a feeling that if most people felt they could not compete with their sporting heroes, they would just be content to sit back and cheer them on from the sidelines. He worried that mass spectator sport would produce a nation of couch potatoes, unfit for military service. Secondly, hero worship went to the heads of the heroes. And this was okay for sportsmen involved in solo events like their ancient Greek counterparts, they were supposed to be selfishly focused on winning, although perhaps with a better appreciation of sportsmanship. But for people who were meant to be team players, it was more problematic. The star footballer or rugby player who didn't know when to pass, or the cricketer who was more concerned with his own batting and bowling averages than winning the match was a liability. Healy hutchinson Norman. Headmaster of Loretto, Scotland's most successful sporting school, was so committed to team spirit that he banned solo sports such as golf and athletics from the school programme because he felt they encouraged selfishness. Ollman was famously influenced by the Spartans for their physical toughness, rational dress and devotion to duty, but he had little time for Greek notions of personal glory. He insisted his rugby players always offloaded the ball to a teammate whenever possible, This met initial resistance from his pupils, who regarded it as cowardly and unmanly not to charge headfirst into the opposition. But they soon found that a quick passing game enabled them to outmanoeuvre their opponents, and players from Loretto dominated Scottish rugby for a generation. Arnold was pleased with this vindication of his views on teamwork, but regarded rugby as a poor second to rowing as the ideal team sport. In rowing, success relies upon all the members of the team pulling together, with no room for individualism. Significantly, rowing was also something which the ancient Greeks were famous for, although more in the context of war and commerce than sport. Edmund War, in master of Eton, and England's leading rowing coach of the 19th century, claimed that rowing was the basis of European civilization. It bought the alphabet from Phoenicia and defeated the Persians at Salamis. Moore was an expert on ancient Greek rowing. He built a full scale replica cross section of a trireme with which to explain ancient rowing to his pupils. He advised Percy Gardner, Norman Gardner, and Lord Desborough on ancient rowing techniques and was an enormously influential figure across classics, education, and sport. The amateur rowing establishment in England, dominated by Eton and Oxford men, had long been associated with classical ideas. But in the late 19th century, as Henley came to be regarded as the centre of the rowing world, rowing culture was even more heavily steeped in classical references, and rowing literature was awash with Latin and Greek quotes. Percy Gardner, he himself, wrote on ancient rowing races for the Journal of Hellenic Studies. In part, he admitted that he did this to advertise the long pedigree of his own sport. Amateur rowing was proud of these ancient routes and made much of them, not least in the promotion of the mechanics cause and in building strong ties with Pierre de Cubitan in, in the years leading up to and after the revi- revival of the Olympics. But here, too, there is something of a paradox. Rowing was important to the Greeks, but was never deemed worthy of inclusion in the ancient Olympics. According to war, both Greeks and Romans enjoyed boat races, but under the Romans and later the Venetians, rowing became the preserve of galley slaves. War equated slaves with professionals and felt neither they nor the boats they rowed in were worthy successors to the Greeks. Percy Gardner also concluded his study of ancient racing by stating that it is not likely that the galley races of the Greeks would be of much interest to the modern athlete or oarsman. The construction of the galleys afforded little scope for skill in rowing, and the rowers were often slaves. This is a point often also repeated by Norman Gardner, who dismissed Roman sport as a pale shadow of its Greek forebear. He saw slaves as equivalent to professionals and did not regard them as proper sportsmen. Thus, although the rowing fraternity in late 19th century and early 20th century Britain made much of their classical antecedents and played a major part in the Hellenization of the revived Olympics, they selectively harped back to Athenian rowing at a very specific point in time. This was especially ludicrous given that British rowing had clear and demonstrable roots in North and Anglo-Saxon culture, with little or no direct input from the galley cultures of the Mediterranean. Percy Gardner and Norman Gardiner both alleged that the professionalization of ancient sport had led to a specialization, which in turn caused physical degeneration. Different body types have natural advantages in different events, and specialised diets and training can adapt the body to make it more likely to suit a particular discipline. This is something the ancients were well aware of, and there are several surviving texts on diets and training. Percy Gardner singled out Herodicus of Solymbria for spoiling athletics by introducing specialised diets and coaching, but he was just one of many. By the Roman period, there were well established and powerful guilds of athletes and trainers. The Greeks themselves were aware of specialized body types. Without the modern innovation of a range of weight classes, the combat events, wrestling, boxing, and pancrating, all came to be dominated by heavy muscular men. This would have also been true of some ancient throwing and lifting events although in the ancient Olympics there were no standalone throwing events such as the discus and javelin, and these only appeared as part of the pentathlon. As a, successful as a successful pentathlete had to be able to run, wrestle, jump and throw, and thus needed the right balance between weight and power, they had to have a less heavy and more generally um, flexible body type. Aristotle regarded pentathletes as the finest specimens of mankind because of this, and ancient statues of discus throwers representing this ideal body type were popular across the Greek and Roman world. And this was coincidentally the type of body aspired to by the English gentleman the amateur. Norman Gardner, however, made much of what he said was a degeneration of body type amongst Greek heavyweight athletes. In his chapter on the age of the athletic ideal, Gardner made extensive use of photography, showing no less than 10 pictures of idealised sculptures of male bodies. These were intended to illustrate the perfect body to which the all-round athlete should aspire, which of course was identical to the body which the late Victorian and Edwardian gentleman should aspire. But in his subsequent chapters on the decline of Greek athletics and sport in the Roman period, Gardner only includes one sculpture, a heavily muscled representation of Heracles, Gardner instead uses extensive quotes from ancient sources to make his case that, professionalized in, that professionalism, training and, and diets led to grotesque changes in body shape and produced athletes who were lethargic and generally unfit for anything other than their chosen specialisation. In his choice of sources, he may have been selective. Their authenticity is not questionable. But his choice of illustrations was misleading. Gardner is backing up his assertions about declining physical types by showing us a sculpture that is not meant to represent a mortal man at all, a famously strong figure from mythology. And then he follows this up by justifying his opinions with the analysis of a body of a Roman boxer from a mosaic at the baths of Caracalla in Rome. Gardner ridiculed men like this for their clumsy, ill-proportioned bodies, their scarred and mutilated faces, their small and brainless heads rendered yet more hideous by the top knot in which their scanty hair is tied. Well, certainly the mosaic is crude compared to the sculptures which Gardner uses to illustrate the perfect body, but it is impossible to judge the relative merits of their original subjects. Even the best mosaic is simply not capable of representing the human form with anywhere near the realism and beauty of the best sculpture. Mosaic is simply a crude medium. And boxers and wrestlers may well have suffered brain injuries as a result of this fall, but Gardner's assertion, Gardner's assertion that they were already banalists due to their body type and diet is wrong. Gardner's ridiculing of Roman wrestlers for their haircuts brings us to another less savoury aspect of his work. As an Edwardian gentleman, he had definite ideas about the merits of a short back and sides, but his own illustrations of perfect Greek body types had included earlier Greek figures with longer braided hair, but in singling out Myron's Discobolus as an example of the perfect body, he had no doubt approved of his tidy haircut. Several times in his various works he talks of how the Greeks were superior athletes and soldiers, and how they defended, how they defended European civilization from long-haired and effeminate Persians. And it wasn't just Persians, but all Asian people, with the exception of the Japanese, that Gardner regarded as either long-haired, effeminate, or despotic, if not all three. He conceded that Egyptians, Sumerians, and Minoans all had sport before the Greeks, but dismissed their games as entertainment for despots. The Gardner, athletics proper, had originated with the achievements of the Peloponnese, whom he described as fair-haired northerners following Karl Opfried's Muller's theory that the Dorians had more in common with modern-day Germans and Anglo-Saxons than with modern Greeks. British identification with the ancient Greeks was mirrored in the adoption of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism, and there were many Britons who did not necessarily welcome the idea of international sport with open arms. Others, most notably John Ashley Cooper, his 1891 proposal for a Pan-Britannic Games founded at the time and eventually spawned the British Empire Games, felt that international sport should be limited to white males from English-speaking nations. They reasoned that this was at least partially justified by the ancient Greek prohibition on non-Hellenic competitors in their games. Hubertan's vision for the Olympics was scarcely any wider. He saw the Games as being for white-educated upper-middle-class males of European descent. For the modern observer, perhaps nothing conjures up the link between the modern Olympics and antiquity better than the image of the discus thrower or discobolus. It is an image which has featured in Olympic branding time and time again, and emphasises the links between the modern Olympics and its ancient Greek roots. Surprisingly, perhaps, the discus was not a standalone event in ancient Greek games. As I said earlier, it was usually only present as part of the Pentathlon. But in a way, this should have made it even more attractive to the Victorian gentleman amateur, with his professed admiration for the all-rounder and dislike of specialisation. Furthermore, the idea that the discobolus represented an ideal body shape had been popularly established in Britain at the end of the 18th century, when Sir Charles Towney obtained an ancient Roman copy of Myron's discobolus from Hadrian's Villa, which ended up as a popular exhibit at the British Museum. However, whilst the body type of the ancient Greek discus throw was approved of by Gardner and the other British historians of ancient sport, they routinely condemned the event itself. In 1834, Donald Walker had included a chapter on discus throwing in his Walker's Manly Exercises, proposing it as a useful way to build upper body strength. But with the exception of two competitions at the Liverpool Olympian Games in the mid-1860s, there are no records of 19th century discus throwing in the British Isles. And When Mahaffey witnessed the event, along with the javelin, at the Athens-Zappos Olympics of 1875, his report from Macmillan's magazine included the aside that we, the British, never throw the disc or the dart. Mahaffey, perhaps unintentionally, reveals the real reason for British to States for discus throwing. It was simply un-British. The staples of home-throwing events were the hammer, the shot and the cricket ball. The first two of which had a long tradition in Highland games and had the sort of Viking roots which fitted in nicely with Victorian English sensibilities about the superiority of Germanic peoples. The discus, on the other hand, was a uniquely Greek event which was absent from other cultures. Even the Greeks had forgotten how the event worked and when they reintroduced it, nobody had a clear idea of the competition rules or throwing techniques. The initial solution was to have two events, one for height and one for distance. Although by the time of the first modern Olympics in 1896, distance had been settled on as the only practical measure of success. By 1896, the Greeks had thirty years of discus throwing competition under their belts, but the event was still hardly known outside of Greece. It was included in the first modern Olympics as a cynical attempt to guarantee the hosts would have a home win in at least one event. In advance of the Games, few would have suspected anyone other than the Greek could win, especially given that potential competitors in Britain and the USA had been seriously led astray by Percy Gardner's estimate of how big an ancient discus was. In 1880, Gardner had written a paper on the ancient pentathlon. Suggesting that a discus in the British Museum weighing 11 pound pounds nine ounces or 5.2 kilos was a working specimen, dismissing other lighter examples of the discus as probably only votive offerings. Why Gardner reached this conclusion is a mystery, particularly given that ancient sources suggest that a discus could be thrown quite a long way, and that most discuses found in excavations were much smaller. Twenty-seven years later, Norman Gardner, aided by Robert Carl Bosenker, compiled a table of all known ancient discuses for his 1907 article, Throwing the Discus. The enormous British Museum discus cited by Percy Gardner is absent from this list. There is only one discus of comparable size listed. While it is clear from this research that the average ancient discus was about the same size as that adopted by the modern Greeks, about 20 centimetres in diameter and just over two kilos in weight, Gardner persisted with the notion that these were probably only votive offerings and that the largest discus was the real thing. That Gardner persisted in this belief is even more remarkable given that Carl Bosenkett, who besides his career as an archaeologist was a noted field athlete, had made a replica of Percy Gardner's five kilo discus in 1892 to see whether a throw of 95 feet, reported by the ancient writer Phalus, was feasible. No record of how he got on with this experiment survives, but it seems unlikely that he threw it very far, especially given the experiences of Robert Garrett a couple of years later. Garrett was the captain of the Princeton athletic team which represented the USA at the 1896 Olympics. He had never thrown a discus but was asked to consider it by William Milligan Sloan, who was his ancient history professor, as well as being the American representative on the International Olympic Committee. Sloan too had been led astray by Gardner's work, and Garrett found he was unable to throw the huge discus Sloan provided for practice more than a few feet. As a result of these trials, he decided to concentrate on the long jump, high jump, and shot ball. However, on arriving in Athens and discovering the competition discus was much smaller, he became a late, late entrant. The Greeks, had what, the Greeks had recreated what they thought was the ancient throwing technique by studying sculptures and images on coins. In doing so, they had concentrated mainly on upper body movement, assuming the legs to have been fairly static. In the Olympics, Garrett decided to try something different with his last throw and pivoted on his legs for extra momentum like a hammer thrower would. And this proved enough to give him a narrow victory on the day, but prompted the authorities to temporarily introduce an additional Greek style discus competition. Where the thrower threw from a small plinth called a bulbous. The introduction of this event in 1906 incensed Gardner even further, and he roundly condemned it and the design of the bulbous in his 1907 article. Such was his influence that the official handbook of the 1908 London Olympics included an article by his friend George Stuart Robertson, an Oxford man who had finished fourth in the 1896 Olympic discus, condemning the event as ridiculous. And demanding its withdrawal from the Games. The Greek version of the event was withdrawn after 1908, after which discus throwing developed as a modern freestyle event in which a succession of central European specialists developed ever more successful techniques. Ironically, these techniques favoured those with a heavy build, very different from the ideal all-round athlete depicted by ancient discover life. Meanwhile, a succession of British voices called for the discus to be dropped from the Olympics altogether. Today, we've only had time to touch on some of the issues raised by Victorian Edwardian historians in relation to sport in their own time. Some, such as athletic nudity, were passed over as being irrelevant to the modern world, although some Victorian writers, notably Kenneth Freeman, were simultaneously scandalised and titillated by the idea that young and married Spartan women exercised nude that the girls who ran in the hurraya did so with one breast bare. Yet despite this evidence that women in the ancient Greek world at least took part in some forms of sport, most commentators instead concentrated on the fact that women were banned from even watching the Olympics, something which was used in some quarters to justify female exclusion in modern times. Other familiar features of ancient sport, such as hooliganism by spectators and stadium disasters, both of which happened a fair bit in the ancient world and was far greater loss of life than anything experienced in the 19th or 20th century, were absent from the dire warnings about future sport, perhaps because they were thought to be in bad taste. We can only speculate about what Gardner would have thought about sport today. For a man who raged about the excesses of professionalism, the time when most professional sportsmen earned little more than factory workers, the incomes of top athletes today would presumably have triggered an apoplectic fit. Wagner might also point to Britain's diminished place in the world since his day and claim his views were vindicated, although in reality the economic, social and political factors that contributed to Britain's decline had little to do with sport directly. And indeed, there's a certain irony that one of post-industrial Britain's most valuable assets is the English Premier League. And it's also ironic that even as Britain's global political power has declined in the post-Cold War world, our Olympians are more successful than ever, albeit that they are now mainly professional rather than amateur. Gardner and his colleagues would undoubtedly have found more parallels with modern and ancient sport today. He once mentioned that the sort of civic reception reserved in ancient Greece for returning Olympic champions would be unthinkable for victorious FA Cup teams. Today, such receptions are common. And from a roaring trade in sporting memorabilia, the drug sheets, and dodgy transfer deals, there are few occurrences in modern sport that do not have an antecedent somewhere in ancient sport. I'd like to finish by reiterating that despite their habit of attempting to draw object lessons from ancient history they discourage trends they didn't like in contemporary sport. Now, Gardner Gardner and their colleagues were nonetheless remarkable scholars who unearthed a great deal of accurate information about sport in the ancient world, when considered in context. They uncovered a complex sporting environment with many sophisticated features which we would recognise from sport in our own time. Where they were led astray was in their interpretation of the similarities between antiquity and their own time and how they used these. This was exacerbated by the educational environment they were part of in which classicism and athleticism, the overwhelming components, combined with a heightened sensitivity to class and social status, which blindly encouraged a dogged adherence to an amateur ideal based on an idealised and romanticised past which never existed in reality. Thank
2: you. Thanks so much, Andy. That was really fascinating.
0: Um we'd love to hear your questions and comments so if you if you uh would like to ask Andy a question or comment um you can pop it in the chat or just pop your hand up and uh draw attention to yourself and you can ask a question yourself and while we're waiting for people to gather their thoughts andy that was a that was really a lot of information really good um perhaps if I can just ask uh something i i think this this concept of of um studying historic kind of predictions of the future i think it speaks to all historians not just sports historians and 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 i think we're tempted to um to think that we've got some kind of um what would I say? Privileged view of the future because because we study the past um, and we sort of you know we kind of say things like oh well if you if you studied history you'd know what was going to happen. Um, so do you think that that your research um, kind of supports the fact that historians have? Um, a bit more of uh, kind of insider knowledge, or does it does it crush our dreams of <laughs> of what we what we think we
1: know? Um I, don't know, I think it can be taken either way. Um I think in the case of uh, of what I've just talked about, it it's a good example of historians who get so wrapped up in wanting to have a certain lesson from the past that they were prepared to bend the past in order to to create the lesson. Um, I think to an extent, some of the things which they talk about have come to pass, but they've played out in a very different way to what they might have expected. Um,
2: But at the same time, I think there are some elements which. Which are um,
1: which, which do play out as more true, I think. Um, one of the people there that I didn't complain about too much was uh, Gilbert West. Um, mm-hmm. you now, West is, is very little known nowadays, I think, and, and is a very underestimated figure.
2: Um, but two
1: two things which are really important, I think, about West's work. Um, in doing his dissertation on the Olympics um, was firstly he was the first person really to get to grips with the idea of footnotes and, and marking down your sources. And a lot of people certainly when I was taught theory of history at master's level everyone said that it was Ranker came up with that but West West was about 50 years in advance of von Ranker in in developing the footnote so that's one thing also West's um, West view of this sporting decline from the Olympics through to the age of Alexander and Romans um, is credited in some places as being the beginning of the um, very popular 18th and 19th century view of ancient civilization of a kind of natural decline narrative and West was supposedly Edward Gibbon's big inspiration when he came to write The decline and Fall of the Roman Empire so um it's quite nice to see a sports a sports historian actually being one of the big big influences in general big proper history you know even yeah, even yeah. very few people realize it nowadays well that's really
0: really interesting actually Okay, so we've got uh, Jody says, thanks Jody, uh, says, thanks Andy, that was great, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the role of masculinity, either amongst Gardner and the elite scholars of the long 19th century or the ancient societies they were analysing.
1: Oh, no, that's, um, that's, that's, uh, that's what's bad, My term's worth of, not it? Um, And two two things there, Um, one, that the role of masculinity is um, fascinating. I didn't really talk about it too much there. Um, But again, it was another complete misconception, I think, on behalf of those 19th century scholars of sport, at least. There were very big differences between, um, well, firstly, there were very big differences between Greek and Roman ideas of of masculinity. Um, And then there are differences again between ancient and Victorian ideas of manliness and masculinity. But for um, the elite schools of the 19th century and, and elite, elite educated boys and men generally the the public school system instilled all kinds of classical ideals of manliness and masculinity on them but it did so in a strangely out of context way and in a kind of mix and match so victorians ended up Solving quite a lot of Greek philosophy, but quite a lot of Roman ideals of manliness and masculinity, um, and a lot of this was based around the what was for Victorians the thorny question of uh, the boundary between uh, a society that was more or less entirely homosocial, in that boys were packed off to um, boarding school when they were six or seven, and if they went on to university, probably spent very little time with women um, until they were in their early 20s. And thus living in an entirely male environment built very strong emotional attachments to other boys and men and didn't really know how to deal with women at all. Um, but it was also at a time when homosexuality was 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 very much taboo. Um, and this tied in a bit when, when we're going back and, and trying to see um, ideas of Greek and Roman madness, and masculinity being projected onto them uh, in the different attitudes of Greeks and Romans towards male to male relationships, where um, in Greece, masculinity did not necessarily uh, exclude homosexuality. Whereas in Rome, it very definitely did. Um, and this, uh, the other thing that was different between Greeks and Romans was, as I said earlier, for for Greeks, they really got carried away emotionally with competition. So winning was very important. And if you lost, you didn't just shake hands, you got very upset and you stamped your feet, you smashed things up. And generally, you got a complete pizza waltz and, and you didn't. Generally, take it stoically. Even though stoicism is a Greek idea, stoicism was much more, I think, popular amongst the Romans. And so, the Victorian idea that you just take the feet on the chin was much more what you would expect in an upper-class Roman. Um, so those things are all mixed up. Um, the other, the other thing about masculinity, which I didn't talk about, is is that whole rise of
2: um of muscular christianity um which is partly
1: partly takes some takes its name and it takes some influence from the writings of Paul, but actually i think to an extent is wrongly named in that it's not got a lot of christianity and it's more kind of muscular Platonism. Um, so a lot of that comes very much out of the Greek philosophy that's underpinning education at Rugby and Eden in the early part of the 19th century, and, and is developed by people like Arnold and Hughes and Kingsley, who are influenced very much by Greek philosophy about the body and masculinity. Uh, but putting this the of Christianity on it to make it socially acceptable at the time. Um, so it's a very interesting subject, which which we could go on at length about, but it's quite difficult to answer in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there, with masculinity. Um so Katie, um hi, Katie. Um so thank you, Andy, for this very interesting talk. Do you think that athletics has been more likely to be in crisis, partly because it's given a different status to other sports. Okay.
2: Uh, now or then? Um, I think. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, I think. Certain sports, um, that there was
1: in the big sort of amateur professional split at the end of the 19th century, um, certain sports took the amateur, um, question more seriously than others. And I think athletics and rowing in particular rugby union, the other one, um, really took amateurism. To extremes, and I think that did cause a crisis, which in I think in British athletics took a long time to resolve. Because what you find happening quite early on is the British developing this very high-minded, pure form of amateurism, which they then did their best to stick to, um, which damaged. The ability of British athletes to go out and compete globally because other countries were just not doing that. Um, There were the big hoo ha's and rivalry between British and American athletes before and after the First World War, in which the Americans were largely regarded as, as cheats by the British amateur establishment for having their collegiate system whereby collegiate athletes were more or less professional in their outlook and the amount of time they could spend on sport, whereas athletics in, in Britain was supposed to be something you did in your spare time, almost like, um, almost like it's called It was, you were supposed to work a really hard full day at something else and then go out and, and run around on the wet streets in the evening doing your training, whereas by that time presumably your American athlete was tucked up in bed in the wall. But um, and, and even through into the Cold War, Britain had a, an abysmal record at international athletics, generally because we were the only people being properly amateur. Uh, in the Cold War, the Americans and the Soviets and, and the other Alliance states to them were chucking quite a lot of money at sport in much the same way that ancient Greek city states did, because they recognised the Olympics was a place for projecting soft political power. Um, and it wasn't really until um I suppose the advent of the national lottery that we suddenly decided we we chuck a load of money at athletics, and it was all right to do it for a living. Um, but that that was was a very long shadow that was cast from from that interpretation of ancient ideas around the turn of the last century um, that particularly athletics, rowing, and, and rugby only came out from underneath that 20, 30 years ago. A
2: bit longer now. Did you want to come back with anything, Katie? No, I just wanted to say thank you very much for that answer. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, brilliant.
0: Okay, so um, Daniel, uh, we're, we're going to um, sign off any minute now, but I think Daniel has a very important question to ask just before we do, which is, is your completed thesis available in the university repository?
1: Um, um, it will be available any day now. Um, I've, I've put my uh, minor corrections back and it's, it's going through the extremely slow process of Manchester Mets internal admin I'm, I'm quite happy um to email a pdf of it out to daniel he would like one if um if he gives me his email address thank you so that's andy um, okay. underscore
0: kerr, k-e-r-r underscore carter with a c um, at hotmail.co.uk or you can find andy on twitter at, um, at andy kerr carter Thanks, Andy, for that. Okay.
2: Um,
0: so I think we need to wrap it up there. We're uh, a little bit over time. Thank you so much, Andy. That was really fascinating, and yeah, I can't wait to read your <laughs> your thesis. I think
1: there's a, it's a bit more <laughs> coherent when you read the thesis. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's going to be so much um, that we can all all uh, learn from. I think there. Um, so uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, do join us um, next time, which is in a fortnight for um, Ben Duncan Jones, which is on the 27th of March. That's a hybrid um, meeting, so you can you can join us if you can in in London at the IHR at Senate House, or or join us online as you have today. Um, so. Uh, I will just thank Andy again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Round of applause. And thank you, everybody. And feel free to leave the meeting.